Hello everybody, I'm Party Parslow and this is Party in China, the story of my fascinating, frustrating and very, very funny adventures teaching English in the Chinese provinces of Sichuan and Jiangsu. This is the truth, but it's not the whole truth because too much happened, and it's not nothing but the truth because there are jokes and hearsay and conjecture and guesses and mistakes, and because I eventually went mad over there and insanity plays tricks with your memory. Welcome to episode three. Previously on Party in China, I discovered that red China was almost completely grey, that Tianjin locals like to spit all over their airport, and that OK Airlines was far from OK, with passengers rioting both before takeoff and after landing in Chengdu. Chengdu is the capital of Sichuan, a large central western province. So fertile, it's known as the breadbasket of China. Actually, the bread is terrible. It's far too sweet. The first time I bought a couple of big buns to make ham and egg rolls for a Sunday breakfast treat, I cut open the rolls and found toffee inside. I mean, that's just cruel. After more than 30 hours travel, I emerged into Chengdu Airport to find dozens of welcoming people all eagerly holding up signs with names on them. Not my name, of course. A few hours of waiting and wandering established that my mobile phone couldn't work in Sichuan and that I couldn't work the public video phones in Sichuan. When a passing local said, Welcome to Chengdu, I rewarded his politeness by press-ganging him into calling the recruiters and asking why there was no one there to pick me up. They swore my driver was there and eventually instructed me to go to the other side of the airport. I'd made the beginner's mistake of walking out the door in front of me. How stupid. Eventually I found him, a nuggety, cranky bloke, waiting with a scrawled sign that said party. Well, it said P4RTY. Close. Without any shared language, our argument about who was at fault took place in charades. His main point appeared to be that the four in my name matched the four above the door where he was waiting, and it's hard to argue with logic like that. Nugget, as he shall be known, led me to his tiny van, which was grey, parked right outside where I'd been waiting for hours. He seemed put out when I climbed into the driver's seat. I forgot which side of the road they drive on. And only slightly less concerned when I got out again and took the front passenger seat. And he was right. I should have lain down in the back with a blindfold. Within three seconds, he'd reversed into the path of a Mercedes, missing it by millimetres. Then he proceeded at an erratic yet frantic pace through the car park, our progress heralded by honking horns from swerving, screeching fellow motorists. There was quite a queue waiting to pay at the exit, but such minor inconveniences were not for Nugget. We went out the entry gate at sufficient speed to avoid any unhelpful conversations with the cashier. It was a neat move, which meant we emerged onto the wrong side of a six-lane dual carriageway. But Nugget seemed unconcerned, and the approaching traffic was sparse enough to allow us to reach a break in the centre fence. With a big, bumpy S-turn over the median strip, we were on both the right side of the road and our way to Chengdu City. In China, traffic flows with all the diligence and dedication of sperm seeking out an ovum, and with just the same discipline and sense of direction. Behind the wheel, Chinese see traffic lights as suggestions, not commands. And such trifles as lane markers or double unbroken lines are merely hints, in practical terms as relevant as hieroglyphics to a hippo. I was horrified the first time I saw a driver defy a red light by mounting the footpath and mingling with the people using the pedestrian crossing, 
before scattering them by accelerating away. But a few days later, when I was in a taxi that did the same thing, it was a hoot. I learnt to enjoy the chaos of Chinese roads. It keeps you on your toes. When riding a motorbike in Australia, I tried to stay safe by assuming that every driver was trying to kill me. Often, I was proven right. In China, you need the same approach to walk to the shops without accident or injury. Knowing your safety is in your own hands feels like a refreshing responsibility and gives the place an anarchic Wild West atmosphere. Nugget delivered me, unexpectedly unscathed, at what looked like a very nice hotel, but as I went to enter the lobby, he yelled and indicated that I should instead head for a grim and grotty shop next door. Apart from the high street big brand stores, which are as shiny and spectacular as in any major city, most shops in China are more like caves with a roller door. This cave was called Sam's Guest House and consisted of one desk with two women crammed behind it and a computer so old it looked like a Commodore 64. Now followed my initiation into Chinese business practices, which remain, for all my intents and purposes, most mysterious. One of the women demanded my passport and 100 yuan. I handed over the passport but explained that Sunny's English Club was paying for the room. She explained that it was a deposit for the key, so I paid up, wondering where the room could possibly be as Sam's was the size of a small garage and there was no back doors or stairs. The woman took my passport and money and left via the roller door opening. The second woman looked at me as if I was a polar bear on a unicycle. After a while, the first woman came back. Oh, I was supposed to follow her. We went next door into the nice big hotel, which I now saw was called The Wrong. And if it was wrong, I didn't want to be right. The woman handed over my passport and the 100 yuan to the receptionist, who photocopied, paperwork, looked at me like I was a polar bear on a unicycle singing New York, New York, and handed over the promised room key. The woman then led me out a back door, down a lane, and onto what seemed to be the set of a kung fu movie, emerging from squalor into a beautiful, traditional wooden courtyard, complete with pond, bamboo, small waterfall, high balconies and sweeping roofs, was quite the surprise. A few old-timers played Ma Yong, the clack of the tiles competing with the blare of horns from the traffic. We walked straight through the pleasant scene and into a filthy hallway with tattered carpet and graffiti on the torn wallpaper. My room was tiny, ugly, and had a view of a narrow alley full of broken furniture and shattered dreams. It was about 4pm and I was very tired, but thought if I could kill time for a while, find something to eat, stay awake until 8pm or so, I'd probably sleep through the night. Next thing I knew, it was 2am and I was thirsty, starving, jet-lagged and unwashed. There was water in a thermos on the coffee table, lukewarm but welcome, and I did my best to freshen up with the shower's desultory drizzle, so that was two problems sorted. The next was food. Obviously, only a madman would go out in a strange city in a strange country in the middle of the night with no ability to speak the language and no idea where he was. So I cackled maniacally to get into character (laughs) and left. The Kung Fu set was dark and quiet except for the trickle of the waterfall. The streets were brightly lit and noisy with traffic, but naturally all the shops were closed. Taxi drivers honked at me hopefully, the few other pedestrians looked at me as if I was a bear on a unicycle singing New York, New York with sparklers in my ears. I wandered about for an hour or so, found nothing to eat, learned nothing useful and went back again. 
Wide awake and very hungry, I sat up the rest of the night, somehow drifted off to sleep again around 7, and promptly at 8am, Grace from Sonny's English Club knocked on my door and hustled me out for my mandatory medical examination. Grace was young, very nice, and truly tiny. Her English was okay, much better than her sense of direction. We got in a cab and went the wrong way for a while. Then, after a brief, shouted conversation between Grace and the driver, performed a perilous U-turn which scattered oncoming traffic. That woke me up. The International Medical Centre teemed with people. Only a dozen or so Westerners, but thousands of Chinese, hopeful for highly prized jobs overseas. The noise was cacophonous, the queues calamitous. One young man fainted as they took his blood. I wasn't sure what had happened at first, as the place was so crowded there was no space for him to fall down, but then people were polite enough to give him enough room to slump to the floor. Nice. Rather than waiting to see a single doctor for a single thorough examination, everybody queued to give a blood sample, then everybody queued to give a urine sample, then everybody queued to have their height and weight measured, then everybody... Well, you get the idea. This was where Grace's lack of organisation became obvious. Other savvier assistants had paid people to wait in the various queues. They then rushed their Westerner from line to line, always taking one of the first few places, and the place minder would go and join another queue. It was during the urine sample collection, standing in a small room with a dozen or so Chinese men, all dick in hand, that I worked out I was dehydrated as well as starving. Or maybe it was shy bladder, as my fellow patients seemed very interested in the size of my white foreign devil. I was too big for most of the equipment. The nurse went and got a stepladder to read my height. They had to find bigger scales, because the regular ones only went up to 100 kilos. That's 220 pounds for our American cousins. When I lay on a gurney to have something intimate done behind a curtain, either my head or my legs would be sticking out for the rest of the queue to point at and laugh. <laughs> All the while, the staff had been shouting at us. We were in the wrong queue. We were in the right queue, but we're queuing in the wrong direction. The queue was on the wrong floor, at the wrong door, in the wrong order. I was tired, hungry, thirsty, jet-lagged, and I hate being yelled at. By the time I had my blood pressure taken, it was so high the nurse thought the machine was broken. She asked, Uh, are you hypertension? Why? I loudly replied that of course I was hypertensive. I'd spent hours being bullied by screaming midgets. She searched for the English words in her mind and then said, Uh, you need relax. A prescription that could not be filled at that hospital. Finally, it was over, and we forced our way through the crowds in the foyer out into the crowds in the street. Grace suggested that we catch the metro to Sonny's office rather than take a cab, so we walked in the wrong direction for a while, turned around and walked back to a subway station. Then we caught a train for a while, got off and caught another in the opposite direction. Eventually, we arrived at Sonny's English Club, a single crappy room with so many desks crammed in I had to walk around sideways. And there I met Belinda, the woman who'd hired me via email and Skype. But I must have looked different in person because she just stood there, said, Wow! Looking up at me like I was a bear on a unicycle, singing New York, New York, with sparklers in my ears and juggling meat cleavers. In my next podcast, Belinda generously takes me to lunch with disastrous results. Nancy ungenerously takes me to my new home in Diang, and I meet my new boss and self-proclaimed new best friend, Mr. Wong. All that and more next time 
on Party in China. You've been listening to Party in China. For more, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Subscribe to the podcast at Audio Boom, Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.